This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Coming up on Today with Jeff Vines, we're looking back at a series called The Story as Pastor Jeff journeys through major events and key figures of the Bible. In this episode, we're looking at stories from the New Testament. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome back to Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the members on the team here at One and All Media. And in this episode, we're finishing up a message Pastor Jeff started last time looking at what happened in Jesus's final hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. For all of this message and much more in this series, you can listen again wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds. Let's finish this message together. Here's Pastor Jeff with what we can learn from Jesus's final hours before his crucifixion. Now, and Jesus is praying. And he's so anxious. One of the gospel writers says that he's close to death, that the anxiety is so overwhelming, it's causing him to go to the line of death. And as he's losing all this blood, they put a crown of thorns. These are two to five inch quills that still grow in and around Jerusalem today. And they take those quills and they make a, a crown out of it. And they, they take it and they put it on Jesus' head. And then they uh, the historian tells us they put a reed in Jesus' hand to symbolize. It's a weak imitation of the scepter that Caesar carried to festive occasions and to athletic events. And then they took the reed out of Jesus' hand with the crown of thorns and they slapped down the crown continuously until the thorns would go down into his skull. By this time, Jesus would be entering into what we call hypovolemic shock, hypo, uh, low volume, emic blood. He'd be losing a lot of blood. And so the heart would start to race to pump blood that's not there. The kidneys would stop producing urine. The, there would be fatigue, uh, incredible thirst. They're not feeding him. He doesn't have any water to drink. And then they put a 200-pound patabulum. This is the crossbeam on which they crucify. And so they would tie Jesus with ropes to this. And of course, because he had been through all of this and survived, he didn't have the strength to carry it up to Golgotha, so the Bible tells us Simon of Cyrene, who was there during the Passover celebrations, the Roman soldier made Simon carry Jesus' cross because Jesus just couldn't do both walk and carry the cross. And the Romans were brilliant at this. They wanted to keep you alive as long as they could to show the world what happens when you rebel against Rome. And so when they arrive at Golgotha, then they lay Jesus down, put him his arms in this case, they didn't break bones, but usually they did. They pulled your arms as far as they could, and then they would nail you uh, to the crossbeam. These are very similar to what we would, they would have used, five to seven inches long, tapered down to a sharp point. And they wouldn't do it here, folks. They would do it here to crush the median nerve. 
It was so painful, and still to this day, those who exact capital punishment say that there is no greater punishment before or since than crucifixion because most capital punishment is rather quick and calculated, but crucifixion was slow and painful, and each person was different on how long they survived on the cross. When they drove the nail through and it crushed the median nerve, it was so painful. We got a new word in English. It's called excruciating, and that word means out of the cross. There was no other word to describe what happened. It's the largest nerve coming out of the hand into the arm. They would nail both Jesus' wrists to the cross, and then they would drive it just above the ankle bone through both feet. The pain was so horrible that Jesus would have cried out, and then they take, after they've nailed him, to the horizontal and vertical pole, there would have been a six to eight foot hole dug in the ground and then they would have hoisted Jesus with ropes and then that cross would have dropped down. And when it drops down, it tears the flesh in both the wrist and the feet and it ends up resting, that is the nails against the, uh, the dorsal bones. Jesus, while he was on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. The reason Jesus knew exactly when he was going to die is because ultimately you die by asphyxiation on the cross. Because you're stretched out on the cross in an, uh, an inhaled position. That is, that there's pressure. If you ever did this, you can inhale, but you can't exhale. So you're in an inhale position, and the only way you can get air out to get more air in is to take your feet and push yourself up to relieve the tension on the muscles, and then you can exhale and inhale and get your next breath. The reason Jesus knew precisely when he was going to die is you die when you lose the strength to push yourself up again. And so every time he pushes himself up, think about the rawness on his back and on his legs and the nails. And finally he knew it was over and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And to make sure he was dead, the Roman soldier said, takes a spear and drives it through the side of Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, the text tells us that when he did that, blood and water flow. Well, of course it did. It's called pericardial and plural effusion. It's when water surrounds the membrane of the heart, the lungs, and it does so upon death. So the Roman soldier was just trying to confirm whether Jesus was dead or not. So he drives the spear, blood and water flows. Jesus is dead. One of the Roman soldiers said, surely this must have been the son of God. The sun is darkened. There's an earthquake in the curtain in the temple is torn in two and Jesus dies and he's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea now why why you say well now I know why Jesus was so anxious no you don't and here's why because there were many Christ followers after Jesus who refused to recant the name of Jesus who died horrible deaths and they faced their deaths with incredible courage. Every one of the disciples, other than John, we just don't know about John, faced a martyrdom death and faced it with such great courage. This, is like, this looks like a weapon of torture, doesn't it? I mean, it's beautiful, but it could hurt. And so Matthew, who wrote, who's one of the gospel writers, actually died in the city of Nadaba in Ethiopia. He would not recant his faith in Christ and they dragged him through the streets of the city and then they beat him over the head relentlessly with one of these things until he died. And he died with courage, singing and praising God. As a matter of fact, Ignatius and Polycarp are historians of those days and they will tell you that the secular world was incredibly drawn to the Christians because of the way they died. There was so, so much certainty in them that they were about to see Jesus. 
that the secular world was compelled and many people came into the church because of the way the Christians face with great courage their deaths. So why would they face death with courage but Jesus seemingly not? What's going on here with Jesus? What is it that surprised them? Now I want you to stay with me. I need your attention. I need you to focus. Because this is one of those times in a sermon when there are two kingdoms diametrically opposed to each other. And one is trying to rob you and me of truth and the other is trying to help us understand it so that we could be changed forever. You understand that? So those of you who are believers and have been for a while, I want you to keep your eyes open. Otherwise, I'll think you're asleep. But I expect you to be praying for these next 10 to 12 minutes. Here's what happened. It's all in the cup. There's a word used to describe when Jesus says, let this cup pass for me, that is a word actually used by first century historians and philosophers, even Plato and Aristotle used it. It is the cup of justice. He says, let this cup of justice, the judicial cup, let it pass from me. What cup is he talking about? Jesus knows he's about to face the wrath of his own father. It's the pain is one thing, but the judicial cup is the cup of, listen, divine absence. Remember what he said on the cross? What's the one thing he said in complaint? Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? The more deep and intimate a relationship is, and the longer it lasts, the more searing the pain of separation, right? If my dog dies, yes, I'm going to hurt, but I'll probably get over it. But if my mom dies, or my dad, or my son, or my daughter, the deeper, more intimate the relationship, the more searing the pain. Jesus has known the Father for eternity. And in their relationship, there is no division because there's perfect love, perfect harmony. There's no jealousy, envy, no strife. Jesus would be the only being ever to know what it's like to be totally separated from the creator. No one ever before him and no one after him until the day of accountability will know what that's like. And he stumbled. It's one thing to go through pain and suffering. It's another thing to go with it alone. And Jesus stumbled. Think about it. God, think, think about what this means. You and I have no idea what the world would be like or your life would be like if God were totally absent. Because God is not totally absent from anybody. Believer, non-believer, doesn't matter. Just by being in proximity to God's place, you don't know what it's like to completely have God removed. And God's judicial cup of justice is perfectly fair because here's how sin works. Sin is basically this. God, I don't want you involved in my life here. I don't want you involved in my life in this area of my life. Now you can come in the other sides, but you can't come here. What does God do? Does he force his way in? No. He says, not my will then. Yours be done. And whatever area that you don't give over to God, you say, God, I want to live this apart from you. God says, okay. And then the disintegration begins. And that's what's wrong with the world. Nobody knows what that would be like. James 1, 17 says that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, that he who made the sun, the moon, and the stars made chocolate. 
and coffee and pie and love and relationship and the oceans and the mountains. So even if you're not a believer, you still get to enjoy his creative handiwork. So nobody knows what it's really like to be totally absent from God. No one knows except one. Because the punishment for rebellion and sin against God is divine absence, either in one area of your life or in your entire life. And that's why, my friends, in this world, there is so much depression and anxiety and frustration and a sense of hopelessness. When you lock God out in a closed system, if you ask him to withdraw his presence, he will. If you tell him to get out of your schools, he'll do it. He will not force his way on anyone because it's about divine romance. He wants you to seek him. He gives you just enough information to know he's there, not too much to override your free will so that you will seek him. And when you seek him and seek him with all your heart, you'll find him. But Jesus hesitates because now God is placing the cup in front of him and saying, son, this is what it's going to be like. And for six hours on the cross and the scourging, he's going to be separated from God and there's going to be a divine absence And nobody knows how deep and dark and cruel that really is because none of you have experienced and you've not experienced because there's one who did it so that you'd never have to. You think, well, wait a minute. You know, I don't like God's system of justice. You know, sin shouldn't be that big a deal. Well, no, not in your eyes. It can be comical to us, but because sin violates and hurts someone that's been created in the image of God, God cares. You say, well, I don't do anything to hurt anybody. Well, do you do anything to hurt yourself? You don't belong to you. Did you give yourself life? Did you breathe life into yourself? You're not yours. You belong to somebody else. And God is holy. And that holy nature requires him to separate himself from all sin. And because of that, we become the objects of God's wrath. Well, I'm not that bad. Let me tell you something. If that's still the song you're singing, you've got two issues. Number one, you're severely underestimating the holiness of God. And number two, you're severely underestimating or overestimating rather your goodness. You're not that good. And God is gooder than you could ever imagine. (laughs) He's holy, but he's also love. And this holy God who must separate himself from all sin is also a loving God who wants to forgive you. And it is brilliant in the mind of God that he sends his only son. So the requirements of his holiness have been met. Jesus takes the punishment due you on himself. And the requirements of God's love have been met. And God gives up most precious, what is most precious to him, so that he would not lose you. So Jesus stops and pauses because he knows he's about to endure divine separation something of which you and I have no even vague idea. But it's not only that. It's not only divine separation, it's divine wrath. Think about it. If my son Delaney, let's say he's six years old and he's out in the ocean and he's drowning and I'm just right there on the shore and I could just walk 10 feet out and Delaney's throwing up his hand, dad, please help me, I'm drowning. And I just stand there and do nothing and look. That's one thing. And that's hard enough, isn't it? But let's say when he calls for me, I walk out into the ocean and I shove his head down and drown him myself. How perplexing is that? But that's what's about to happen. Because the Jews didn't kill Jesus. And in a very real sense, you and I didn't kill him. 
God deemed his sacrifice on the cross worthy to forgive a multitude of sin. He wasn't facing the wrath of men. He was facing the wrath of God. And God allowed all these things to take place to bring together in full fruition his own will and plan. You know what this means, don't right? You, it means that Jesus died your death. He died your death. You and I were supposed to be separated from God. You and I were supposed to pay the penalty for sin. And everybody in this room, in the same way you know down deep inside, in the same way you know down deep inside that there's another place that exists, you also know you're a sinner. And you know I'm a sinner. That's why you don't like preachers who act all self-righteous. Because you know they're lying. But you can only know they're lying if you know you're a sinner too. Because we all are. Jesus died the death you're supposed to die so that you could live forever. But not only did he do that, and here's where we miss it. He not only died your death, he lived your life. Now, this is what we never talk about. Stay with me. I read a story this past week about uh, uh, two MPs and a Navy lawyer coming to arrest a guy that had been retired from the military. And as they came to arrest him, he had, you know, he was a good military man, but he had in his older age, gone to a life of crime. He'd become a criminal. And so they came to arrest him. There was a struggle. And as they're struggling with the old military gentleman who'd retired from the military, they jerked off his tie and underneath was the Congressional Medal of Honor. As soon as that happened, the two MPs stood up with respect and so did the lawyer. Not so much for the man, but for the medal and what it represented, the sacrifice of so many men and women to give us the freedom to be able to have a message like this on a weekend. Do you understand that the Bible teaches that when Jesus looks at you and when God looks at you, God no longer sees your sin. He sees that Jesus has paid your debt in full. And that's why the curtain in the temple was torn in two because now we all can come into the presence of the Father. You can only come in if you're holy. You say, well, I'm not holy. Yes, you are. If you have received Christ as your Savior, you can walk into the Holy of Holies because he's died your death, but he also lived your life, which means this. It's one thing to have the Father's wrath turned away from you. It's another thing to have God adopt you as a son and treat you like one of his own, and yet that's exactly what he does because he gives you a medal that can never be taken away, and when he sees you, he doesn't see the sins that you've committed. He sees the sacrifice that Jesus made, so when he looks at you, he actually sees you as holy and righteous because he accredits the life Jesus lived and the death he died to your account so that you become a son and daughter and nobody can ever take that away. Neither death nor life nor troubles, person, nothing can take that away from you because you didn't earn it and it was given to you as a gift. And I'm asking you to do this. Think about this. You know down deep inside, man, you know there's something beyond, man. Do you know it? That's why every time you go to a funeral, you say whether you're a believer or not, well, they're in a better place. You know. You betray your own mind sometimes. You know. God says he has placed eternity in our hearts. We know eternity exists. In the same way you know that, I'm asking you to admit something that you're not good enough to be favored by God. 
You're not. I'm not. We're not. God knew that. He made a plan from the beginning of the foundations of the world, which is why the cross is still the most recognized symbol in the world, and it's why the Bible is still the number one selling book of world history. In it is the truth of God. And everybody in the room now has an opportunity to decide. Because if you tell God all your life, I don't want you to control my life. I don't want you. I don't need you. At the end of time, here's what happens. In the words of C.S. Lewis, God looks at you and says, okay, then not my will, but yours be done. I am not going to force myself upon you. And then you too will discover what it's like to be in a place where the divine absence is so powerful that where there is no God, there will be no good thing. Because when God leaves, so does everything precious and good and right. It goes with him. You make a decision then. Right here, right now, God sends you out an invitation, and I'm asking you to RSVP to repent. Turn away from this idea or attitude that you have that you don't need a Savior. You're good enough on your own. Say you're sorry. God, I'm sorry for ever thinking I could live my life on my own without you, and I could ever be good enough. Verbalize your trust in Jesus. He's the only way to the Father. He didn't come to show you a way or a truth. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I lived your life. I died your death. I am your ticket. And then plunge your past at a later date. Be baptized. When people heard the gospel, they were baptized to show to the world that they were confessing Christ before men. And Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. And when you come out of the water, you're saying, I'm a new man. Now, does it mean you're not going to sin anymore? Good luck with that. No, it just means that your eyes have been opened now and that your effort to be righteous is not to earn favor with God. It's out of appreciation for what's already been given to you as a gift. And so, if you're in the room, man, and your conscience and your eyes have been opened, man, don't leave here without a decision because you never know when the iron is going to strike again. And the things you're seeing right now, you may never see again. Father, I thank you for your love and your kindness and your goodness. I thank you for the power of the gospel. I pray right now that eyes would have been opened. That somehow in a moment of time, we would understand that Jesus in the garden, although not afraid to endure the pain and the suffering, for the first time recognized and realized that divine separation was just so difficult. The thought of it caused him to stop, pause, and ponder. And I pray that everybody in this room would do the same. They would stop, they would pause, and they would ponder. And they would be truthful with themselves. In the way that Jesus took the next step and said, Father, I don't want this, but if it's your will, I will drink the cup. He drank the cup of obedience, and now you ask us to do the same, to acknowledge that Jesus is real, that he lived and he died, and he lived our life and he died our death, and that God, the Father, brilliant in his mind, to convince us of the depth of his love, was willing to give up what was most precious to him, the life of his own son, to give him up so he would not lose us. 
And I pray eyes would be open and lives would be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.